It's very likely that from the continuance of this as it's closing, it appears to be in a house. He's already been through a field. He's been pursued by the Pharisees. So let's pick it up. And then we'll come to this point where we'll review at least a couple of places that give us an idea why Jesus is moving in what we can say parabolic teachings. There's two terms. Parabolic can refer to both what this is. It's an illustration, and it's an illustration that has heavenly or divine implications, but it's phrased in such a way in which it's not obvious. It takes a work of the heart, or it takes a desire of the person to pursue what does this mean? How does it affect me? What is God saying? In another term that also could be similar to it, an enigma, there's a mystery that needs to be solved. Jesus will explain some of these very well. In other words, he removes the mystery. The enigma doesn't have to be solved if you're listening to him. But he does that not on all of them, just some major portions of it. And part of that is simply to clarify why he's moved into this style of revelation, of teaching. And the reference that I was using were those who, contrary to God's will, and yet holding a position of godliness, they were after him. Their intent was to remove him, basically to kill him. We know that that plan ultimately will be satisfied in a death, but they didn't kill him. He went on his own recognizance. That means he was under his own charge. And he met the timeline that was purposed for him by the Father to be the sacrifice on that day in which the nation would be celebrating the Passover feast, the lamb he would be, slain before the foundations of the earth. Everything was in perfect timing. So just to make sure you understand that. But this is nevertheless one of the things that he's doing. He is saying things that only those who, with a heart to know God, and as they admire Jesus and are listening to his words, are receiving without a lot of complexity. The other ones, though, who have been both deceptive and who have, at the same time, been those who have put charges against Jesus, they're going to pick up the clues that he's offering them, and they're going to be making cross-comparisons with what had been previously spoken of in the Old Testament, which is that book, series of books, both prophetic and also from Genesis through the laws that were basically telling the people of God the standards of God. And so they're going to get clued in on some phraseology, and it's going to not settle their soul. They're going to become unsettled. And they're going to become even greater adversaries of the work of the Lord. So it says, while he was still talking to the multitude, so there's a lot of people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking 
to speak with him. So let's just take a little bit of a pause here to say, why weren't they there with him? He has been engaged in both healings and teachings. How is it that they're making an appearance at what would be the close of, if you would, one of his main conferences? And I find it intriguing only because I've been there too. Many before me went to see Jesus. I knew he was there. I knew what I would find if I went. I was confident he would do me no harm. But somehow, the priorities that I had in my life allowed me to justify a tardiness to the events that were intended to inspire my life. So you've heard the story before. I just need to interject it to say, when I look at them, and I say language that could have, if you would, a righteous indictment, I have to indict myself. I'm guilt-free now, but I'm just saying I played that game. And then when the attention was necessary, you know, to have God really give me his time, then I believe I would have heard from his mouth what he is saying to his family from his heart. This is Mary. That's his mom. And a mom's heart, there would be no reason to suggest he was not both considerate, a gentleman, and truly a son that loved his mother. There's nothing that would suggest that as the older brother in his household, and we'll define what that means, because he was their brother, he would have been a half-brother, that he would have had any disregard for his family. What I'm saying is, somehow, some way, the sons that are coming did not regard him in the manner by which this multitude that had been following him had. Nor did they necessarily regard him as ones that the Pharisees were becoming not only suspect of, but jealous. They were just moving through life, and you would probably ask yourself, how could they, having lived in the household of Jesus, the very presence of God manifested in human form, how could they? not have caught on to the clues early. He never breaks a dish. Every corner of the house is clean. He looks at a dark corner, it, it just illuminates. There are things that just don't happen to us that are happening to other families. Or when they do, there's such a peace that settles over us, unlike the other families. The scriptures are silent with regard to the growing up years. But we do know that if it was a Jewish household, it was vibrant with life. The socializing within those homes would have been exciting, not dreary, not with heads in the bowl, but actually hands in the bowls, participating in eating different, if you would, servings of food, be it simple or complex. That would have been the event not to miss. And yet here's an event not to miss, and they did. They come late, so they use their VIP card. We know Jesus. Well, we know you know him because 
your family, right? Yeah, tell them we're here. We're with mom. And so there seems to be a messenger. The brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with him. Mary as well. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Verse 48. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Verse 49. He stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, we're not told that he said, pass that message on to them. We're not told that. What he's saying, which sounds to us as if there's a severance with his family, is he's speaking of a greater work that God is doing in what we know as the nuclear family, the tenure of a human family that is spiritual, but living on earth. He now is making a precedent concerning the eternal family. And he's saying that the way that we look at one another within our homes is no less deserving than how we look at each other in the house of God. If we have a protective and even special relationship with our families that merit attention on demand, whatever it is our needs are to be met, then Jesus is saying even more so is the family of God. And we identify the family of God. He's saying essentially, whoever does the will of my father. The will of his father was identified on several occasions. One of them was that you believe that he sent me. That's the will of my father. You believe that he sent me. You're doing his will. And other things you will do also. The multitude over the minority are those whose hearts gladly are receiving the word. The minority, the religious elites, are those who refuse to take scripture that multiplies the evidence with flawlessness on who this man is and that what he says is true, and you better listen up. They have the very scriptures that they were noted for as being scholars to both correct them and for them also to yield to. So this would be in those days biased media. That's who these guys were that had been following the Lord. They would have been whispering to the people, he's not who he says he is. We're going to take care of him. Messiah, don't let us hear that word. He's not. When all the evidence, in particular, in Isaiah, pointed clearly 
at least 700 years to the birth of the Lord, that he came exactly as the scriptures proclaimed himself to be introduced into the world. So the massive amount of people, which again is difficult to, you know, put into your mind because the word implies too many to number. Don't even bother trying. You'll, you'll lose. Have you ever asked, been asked by somebody to like count chairs that's larger than this auditorium and that you can see them? Because you know you missed one or two and your assignment is to count accurately. Okay, that would be the frustration of counting a multitude. Plus a multitude of people that are always moving. Don't move! Freeze! You moved. I stole. And so that's the idea is that however these people are compressing and however they are coming from their different areas, which would be locales outside of this region, and the scriptures are going to pretty much tell us, I think without argument, where they are at presently. But when he says this statement, he now, to the ears of the Pharisees that are listening, is implying there's an, there's an eternal picture right now that you're missing. And because you're missing it so overtly right now, this is now all going to be translated in a mysterious way in which the only way you'll understand me is by seeking God with all of your heart, all of your mind, searching the scriptures without bias and coming to the conclusion that I am who I say I am. And the people that you see right now who are alarming you because of the favor that they are giving me, you're going to have to deal with in repenting for what you have not shared concerning me. So there's nothing right now that would indicate anything other, not an insult to the family, but rather a compliment to the greater work of a greater family. You see right now we are actually a greater family. We're all going through stuff right now independently in our own little families. And we all have similar stories. We've been tested, we've been tried, we've lost, we've gained. You know, we're getting older, we're, we're changing. Some of us will see a finish line that's longer in the distance. Some will see a shorter finish line coming up. I'm not exactly sure where I'm at. And I found it interesting because Jesus right now in this ministry, as we're looking in chapter 13, there's still many more miles to go, many more teachings to share. But when you look at a three-year tenure in ministry, that's not a lot of time. May 1st, marks four years in this facility, 10 years marked February 26th as a church. And it's passed just like that. I remember the other day I was thinking to myself, just analyzing life and what the Lord's done and questions that I still have. And I'm going, okay, where were other people historically in their life at about my time frame right now? And so I just started considering and I actually started looking up. Spurgeon, where was he? Ooh, I've, I've outlived him. He passed away at 57. Huh. Okay, what about Moody? Those guys knew each other. Oh, he made it to 63. I passed him up. Who else am I in standing with? 
C.S. Lewis, because he's been an author that we've been talking about in the home. Oh, wow. He was one day shy of 65. He passed away the same day that John F. Kennedy was shot. And all of these things speak of a concern about the tenure of life and about what matters. Family matters. My family does matter. Your family does matter. But we right now collectively are family. We're God's family. And we really matter. It matters. That term can have a legal underpinning. When a matter is brought before the court that indicates a case that's presented that has evidence that needs to be weighed out. God says there's sufficient evidence in the matters of my family that will be weighed out. And there's not going to be any confusion on the adjudication. Therefore, don't be confused about the matters. The matters that the church has to be a beacon of light, to be salt, to be able to stand on moral ground without compromise. And we don't have to be nasty because we're going to be dealing with nasty people. Those nasty people are what? They're the ones that have shown up last, late, never at all for these conferences that Jesus has been holding throughout the world. Even nature itself speaks of his hand, his creative hand, indicted by nature itself. We've talked about that before in Romans 1, 18, 19, 20. And so as he stretches out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And some may say, okay, well, let's get back to the family tree. So I'm going to do that. If you'll go in the same chapter, because we'll come upon it later, in the 55th verse where there's contention, notice what happens to these snarky little reporters trying to bring scorn upon Jesus. Is not the carpent is this not the carpenter's son? That's verse 55 of chapter 13. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Question mark. And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters. Are are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things and they were offended at him but Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house one of the classic insights that's so true how can we be so effective elsewhere and so dysfunctional in the very core of where we ought to be most influential. How can that be? Well, it happened to Jesus too. His brothers definitely were not sold on him yet. Why? Again, we have to ask ourselves the question, why weren't we when we could have been much earlier? Like when we were on our knees and mom and dad were in the room praying for us. You know, I was humoring you a couple of weeks ago when I said the prayer that I learned that you probably learned too was truly 
my prayer way too late in life, but it worked. The only thing I forgot to share with you is that my prayer also included, and God bless Mommy, Daddy, David, and Donnie, Robbie, Jim, Trixie, Sue, and everybody everywhere. I think I left it off on this story night because I really wanted you to know that's what I was hoping for. A story, any story. Bible story, okay, but any story. Give me a story. Keep me through this story night. Give me a story that gets me through the night. Many things replaced the story night, the void that I tried to fill besides spiritually communicating with God. So that's your text to be able to support the fact that Jesus actually had siblings. Were they gods? No, there's only one God. Jesus was uniquely brought forth, as the scripture said. So it's important to note that. Here we go, chapter 13. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. This very likely is simply pinpointing for us Capernaum is very likely where he's at. It was the area that was his Galilean ministry, and he moved in all different sectors from that point. The reason that probably that may be more likely is because of how close the shoreline is to that particular area, and that many of the miracles that had already been done had been in that very place. Capernaum would be indicted by him for their disbelief to have the headquarters of God there and to not believe in what he had done as God. So he goes out and he sat by the sea. In verse 2, the multitudes are still coming on strong and great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So there's conjecture as to why he did it. One version of the gospel account indicates that by reason or the disciples that were nearest to him feared for his safety, they escorted him to a boat that was available so that he could have a hand's distance from the multitude. We've seen and heard in concerts where people can surge and the ones that are up closest to the staging area or ones that accidentally fall become crushed in that massive surge. You just get compressed. You lungs cannot take breath. I don't think that, yes, football, that was a surge. The dog piles, that was, I don't think you're allowed to do this anymore, but back in our day, unless the whole team was on top of you in that dog pile, they hadn't done their job. You were to come out as a limp nothing. So I do remember that. Or wrestling, you know, guys actually that could take their legs and just squeeze the tidal and residual air out of you. And then when you're trying to suck air, they pin you. Those kinds of things are what may be the reason. There's others that in commentary have said, the sea's quiet, in this case a very large lake, something like 8 by 14 miles, something like that, would have been to that hillside of Capernaum an acoustical setting. We use microphones for our acoustics so that you could hear. And my voice here probably would have been something in similitude 
to what Jesus would have sounded like projecting. Well, one, he's God. But we know that men with loud voices, strong vocal cords can project quite a ways. So there is this concept that says he may have used that as an acoustical amplifier using the still waters of the lake, the surrounding actually terrain, which is somewhat of amphitheater in looks. It's, it all seems to just grade towards the lake. And so on a quiet day, he would have been easily able to be heard. Notice this. Could you, Everest, give me my cup of coffee over there? And see, if some of you are watching your clocks going, oh my goodness, he's just started 13, then you might be able to say, the Lord heard me. He's shutting the mouth of the lion. And I get a cup of coffee and it all looks good. And these guys are going, what? Could you give me that little plate of mine? Thank you so much. This is the parable teachings. And it's appropriate that he moves into this because as the multitudes are following him, so are the bad reporters, the ones who are taking aim at him and going to give false testimony about him. Great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And by the way, I will say this, it could be reasonable thoughtfulness on the Lord's part. And I'll tell you why. Depending on what time of the year that this season is in, early spring, which I generally tend to favor right now, when the rains have come, the seashore is very spongy. And I would say that the terrain, the geotopical area has not changed much per se in all the years. I don't think it's moved from rock to basically soil or soft clay. But when we were there, if you walked in what we found to be the moisture laden area of the lake around it, this soil, this shoreline soil, it's not sandy, it's like loam, like garden soil and clay, it compresses against your tennis shoe or sandal. We had flip-flops and sandals. You'd be leaving your flip-flop more than taking it with you. It would just grab and suck it off your foot. If you were wearing tennis shoes, you'd all of a sudden be gaining like two inches of height because it would stick to you like platform shoes in the 80s, or maybe that was 70s. So if you like platform shoes, all you have to do is go to Israel during the springtime, walk around the lake, and you have platform shoes. So it may be that right now the multitude is not invited to sit, but to stand out of, per se, a courtesy to them, that they might be able to have movement and not get caught, or if you would, 
their garments soiled. They also have, if again, the geotopical area remains the same, there's a real thorny little bush there. It's, it's a weed, it's a thistle, it's got real spikes to it. So when you're walking through that area, it grabs at you. It's different than a blackberry. I'd say that it probably is more punitive than a blackberry because those are small. These are like little javelin piercing spikes on these flowering little thistles. And so it may be that Jesus was exercising simply a courtesy to this multitude, which I wouldn't doubt at all. The reason being is that as he's having them stand and as he's now seated, they also have a higher plane of vision. I'm not saying some aren't having to move and jostle about, but I do believe that both with his voice and how he's positioned, they're all getting a chance to see him. And so he says to them, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some, verse 5, fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. Verse 6, but when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 10, again, right now we heard a parable. We don't yet understand the parable. This question is provoking now to his disciples. It says they came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now the question is, is he in the boat, out of the boat? Are they yelling at him? Are they diving for the boat? So there are things even right now in this narration we're not yet sure of. What we do know is that it is provoking a question, which is what the parable is to do. It's to provoke an internal question about the eternal, an internal question about the eternal. Every one of us have gotten our lives provoked by the question of eternity. Where am I going? When am I going? Am I going to the right place? And so if you're with somebody and they can't answer when, and they're unsure of how or the where, then you'll understand they're in a spiritual dilemma that provokes for them a question. I don't know how to figure this out. If it's somebody that says, man, I heard they got a great sound system down south, and I heard there's like fireballs. That sounds exciting. Well, then they don't know what they're talking about, and no one's told them about hell because it's not a party. And there's no fun to it whatsoever. Jesus, in this provocation of the question that's being asked, is now going to walk them through having a gleaning or understanding. By the way, if you move towards um, Isaiah, I think I'm going to just direct your eyeballs there, because you'll kind of get a little footing as to where 
this idea of the parable has come from, it comes from Isaiah 6. It's not the only noted area. Many of the prophets will speak of the parable, the dark saying, Psalm 72, verse nine or 8 or 9, is a psalm that speaks of the dark utterances of God, the parables that are spoken that provoke a person to ask questions on the inside about what happens on the outside, the eternal. Verse 8, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, notice this, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, every person, if they stand before the Lord and are not saved by the blood of the Lamb and invested faith, then this is what they will hear as well. Did you not hear the voice of the Lord? Uh, did you not hear the voice of the Lord here? Did you not hear the voice of the Lord there? <laughs> yeah, Lord, I did. And it's a gotcha moment. So notice this. This is Isaiah. It's where he begins actually developing a passion for God. And it's coming because it's provoked in him. He's had a vision, chapter 6 tells us, of the Lord. And it's a provocation to cast off what he's been doing to now what he desires to do, to be a prophet of God. He hears the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? The Trinity pronounced there. Then he said, this is Isaiah, here I am. Send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Now here's where you would have the proverb or what we would call right now this parable. Tell them this, the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste, and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So it's a prophetic word, but it's a parable. It's a teaching by which what they need to hear, they no longer will be able to hear because they've proven to be disobedient. They don't care. And Isaiah's concerned enough to say, okay, so how long do I have to do this? I mean, I did volunteer. That's true. I've been moved. I heard you and I saw you in a vision, but how long? And he's basically saying until things really get difficult and then continue to get difficult until there's nothing left, but just a remnant. That's how long can you go that distance? Can you go the distance that it requires that the landscape of your culture changes to the point of not bettering, but worsening? And you want out, and you don't want to stay in, 
and yet he's just signed up for the Lord's army. He's just now gotten his dispatch, and the hardship of his job right now is that everyone he's preaching to is going to literally have a heart that will not want to honor God. He is going to be preaching to kings that will be disobeying God. He ultimately will have his life taken by one of the nastiest kings of Israel, Manasseh. This is something that is extraordinary. But in essence, this parable style of teaching is manifesting right now. And this is actually what the Lord is doing. The Lord is doing in Isaiah right now. He's speaking to a people group that there are those who want to hear and they will understand. They ultimately will become disciples on the day most important, which will be Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down and they will be drafted in and they will become an eternal family because family matters and the things of God matter most to God. And so as he moves on in this close that I'm going to identify, verse 10, the disciples, as they've come to him, they speak to him, they ask him, what about parables? And he answers and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. He's drawing a line. We've heard that word in politics, that line in the sand. And he's saying, though you may not understand right now, it has been given to you the resources to understand. It's something you may work at. Revelation will come to you as you continue to spend time with me. But for these others who are contrary, the ones who have been saying the things that you have found to be atrocious and insulting, it is not for them to hear. They're not getting in now as easily as they could have in faith. It's going to be an entirely different dispensation on them. To them it has not been given. Verse 12, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, verse 13, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Does that sound pretty close to where we just left off in Isaiah? He's drafting this all the way back. And he's saying, what Isaiah was saying back then was typifying ultimately what I personally as God would say to a people. Still not doing any better. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And here it is, which is what we just read. Hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the heart's notice of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. And God isn't proclaiming animosity towards them. He's saying now it will be a work of the soul. They're going to have to come to that point saying they're fed up with the decisions they've made on their own, and contrary to what God has wanted to do in their lives and for them. But blessed, verse 16, are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
the eternal family of God matters. While at the same time, the best outcome for the temporal family of God, our nuclear families, important, it matters to him as well. But he's moving into now a series of parables that will be teaching principles. He's already told the ones that have a heart for God, this is a mystery and you're going to love it because your heart desires to solve those things. And the only way you'll solve it is by staying close to me. Every one of us live in sequences of mystery that the Lord says, come on, here's a clue, here's a cue, follow it out, go to the word, be on your knees, listen to the voice of prophecy. And when you see that in your life, you go, wow, how could I have ever doubted God? How could I have ever doubted the Lord? But some of us have, haven't we? Some of us have. Wish I was in the spot that 18 and 25-year-olds are today. I could have been, but I chose not to be. Took me to 31. Mm. It's okay. I caught it, and now I teach it. But I lost a good chunk of time in between it. 